Hey y'all, thanks so much for tuning in with me today. The case I am wanting to talk about today is about a serial killer who is committing crimes in the 2000s, which to me was immediately interesting when I started to learn about him because most of the infamous serial killers were committing their crimes in the 1960s through the 1980s. The term serial killer wasn't even coined until the 1970s. Serial killer is defined as a person who commits a series of murders, often with no apparent motive, and typically following a characteristic, predictable behavior pattern. Today's episode is about Israel Keys, who was able to go undetected for 10 years before he was finally arrested. I'm not a legal professional. I do have a paralegal degree and I've worked as a legal assistant, but I cannot give legal advice and I do not want to. My legal advice is to always seek the advice of a licensed attorney. Any information that is discussed or stated is alleged unless otherwise proven in a court of law. I am presenting this information for entertainment purposes and for open discussion about the information that is already made public. Israel Keys was a horrific sexual psychopath, in my opinion. The topics that I cover are not for the faint of heart, and please take this as my trigger warning. I will always try to present the details of any crime that will be covered in the most respectful way that I can, but these topics that I will be discussing are yucky to say the least, and so I understand if you have to skip ahead a few seconds during an episode or if one episode is just not for you. Israel Keys was pretty much unremarkable and unknown prior to 2012 when Samantha Koenig went missing. He was 34 years old. He had no prior police record, and I will get into his upbringing in a bit, but his family lived a very remote lifestyle. He was also not what the horror movies tell us is what a monster should look like. He is tall, yet lanky, but not very attractive or even remarkable just quite unassuming. He even would later tell police that he has a persona that he has been practicing to seem like any other generic guy. Quote, no one in my life really knows me. No one would ever suspect me. I can be both people, a killer and a normal neighbor and family man, unquote. But it is speculated that Israel Keys killed around 12 people over the course of 10 years as well as committing other crimes, including sexual assaults and bank robberies. But only three of his murders have been confirmed so far. During his eventual interrogation, which lasted months, he would always say he had under a dozen victims, but he would not confirm the actual number. Investigators would try to catch him off guard and would say things like, okay, tell me about the nine victims, or so you had 10 victims? And every time Israel would correct them, no, I never said I had nine victims, or I never said that there were 10 victims. But when they said, so tell us about the 11 victims, he would never correct them. So it is strongly believed by investigators that he committed 11 murders. But as I said, he also committed other crimes which created other victims that do not get much attention. And I'm sure the victims in the bank robberies, which there were many, were traumatized. And I hope they were able to cope and heal from that. There were sexual assault survivors as well, who thankfully got away with their lives, but the trauma from those attacks, I'm sure, was life-changing. 
to say the least. I also hope that they are at peace with themselves and have learned how to cope with the attack and move on from that. The victims should never have guilt or take the blame for the attacks inflicted upon them. And I wish any survivor inner peace. I think that I find Israel Keys so interesting because as I stated earlier, most of the serial killers we hear about and talk about in the true crime community were active during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Not that there are not always serial killers actively causing chaos around the globe, but the infamous ones were back then, except for Israel Keys. Did you know that at any given time in the United States, there are anywhere from 25 to 50 active serial killers walking among us? I've even heard some state that the actual number may be much higher than that, into the several hundred. Israel's last murder was in 2012. He was difficult to tie to his crimes and was able to continue for so long because he not only allowed himself years to meticulously plan out his crimes, he would plant kill kits all around the country, which were large buckets or bags which held whatever he may need to commit a murder, and then get rid of the evidence. The kits each contained different items, and these items included, but not all of them had the same things. They had weapons, guns and knives, ammo and silencers, masks, zip ties, duct tape, ropes, shovels, Drano to remove fingerprints, and other tools to potentially dismember somebody. He also would choose locations which require him to travel up to over a thousand miles by plane and car so as not to be tied to the location and would depend on opportunity versus having a specific victim type. When a serial killer is predictable, they're easier to catch, but he was very unpredictable. He was born in Richmond, Utah in 1978 to parents Heidi and John who went by his middle name, Jeff, Keys. They were members of the Mormon religion and Israel had 10 siblings. They were all homeschooled and were forced to memorize scripture and were not allowed to socialize with anyone that didn't also follow their core values and beliefs. They did not believe in modern medicine or hospitals. All 10 siblings were born at home and their births were never reported, so they did not have a birth certificate or social security number. They were living so sheltered and remote that some of the neighbors reported to authorities that they never saw the children and were concerned for their welfare. His parents didn't believe that others should interfere in their lives, so they packed up their family and moved to a very remote and secluded area in Washington State when Israel was five years old. This also caused his parents to denounce their Mormon beliefs and they began to attend a church named The Ark, a Christian church with very strong white supremacist, racist, anti-Semitic views. Keyes later described the Ark as an Amish-like church environment, which I interpret to mean that they were very much reliant on what they could produce for themselves. No electricity, they built their own homes and barns, they don't use cars, they believe heavily in hard work and dedication to God. They lived on a remote plot of land around 160 acres in the mountains, isolated from society, in a one-room cabin located on Rocky Creek Road where they lived without electricity or running water. During this period of attending the Ark, the Keys family befriended the neighboring family of Chevy Kehoe, 
who was later convicted for a 1996 triple murder. The Kehoe family were very racist and wanted to start a race war. And the two brothers, Chevy and Shane, were a terrible influence on Israel. From some of what I read, there's a lot to get into with the Kehoe clan, but I'm not going to get into all of their details at this time. But I have put them on the list for a future episode. So please feel free to reach out to me on social if that would be something you would like me to cover. The Keys family attended another church in Colville, Washington called the Christian Israel Covenant Church that taught British Israelism as doctrine that Anglo-Saxons were to rule over the perceived inferior races and that Keys later alleged to have been militia-like. For years, some of the Keys children had been forced to sleep in a tent due to the cabin's small size. To survive, the Keyes family children were made to hunt their food, chop firewood, and work on local farms to support the family. As a youth, Keyes admitted to shooting at neighbors' houses with his BB gun, starting fires in the woods, and breaking into houses for fun. He also occasionally broke into houses with another youth, who subsequently avoided him after witnessing him shoot an animal. On one occasion, Keyes stole several guns from his neighbor's residence and was forced to apologize by his parents after they discovered the loot. But he frequently would break into homes for the sole purpose of stealing weapons. Keyes, who was six foot two inches tall by the age of 14, would sell some of the stolen guns to local adults. But he also enjoyed taking the guns into the woods and using the wildlife for target practice. One thing he really seemed to enjoy was that he practiced hiding and stalking people in the woods. He would blend into the surrounding while observing and watching people for hours. This behavior would only intensify as he grew older. Now to me, a lot of what I just described isn't great, but not the worst. He was a troubled kid who needed some guidance and some positive influences in his life. Except that's just some of it. The next part might be tough for some of you to hear, as it involves animal cruelty. Israel not only hunted animals for the purpose of survival and for food, he would find animals that he had no intention of eating, like cats, and find different ways to torture and kill them. As a hobby, Keyes admitted that he hunted anything with a heartbeat, and freely admitted to skinning a deer alive to his peers at the church. He enjoyed violently attacking them until they would eventually die from their wounds and would laugh while they were struggling. And some of these attacks were witnessed by other teens in his community. But none of them would laugh or enjoy his psychotic and troubling behavior. The last time that a peer joined him in the woods, he shot a cat in the stomach and allowed it to suffer and bleed out in front of him. He was laughing and enjoying watching the poor animal struggle. But his peer was afraid and looked at him with disgust and then quickly ran away. So they all very quickly avoided him and would not go with him into the woods any longer. As a result, Keyes was ostracized and actively avoided by the rest of his peers who attended the Christian Israeli Covenant Church, where one girl recounting that Keyes' presence made her skin crawl. He started to realize that he wasn't like the other kids. He started to withdraw even more from his peers and had severe antisocial behavior traits. By his teens, he became a skilled carpenter and worked for a contractor between 1995 and 1997. The family then moved to Smyrna, Maine, 
where they collected sap for maple syrup production in a mostly Amish community. His mother continued to force the family into very strong religious beliefs and attempted to ban her children from playing instruments, listening to music, or watching movies, etc. His mother's overzealousness forced Israel to denounce his religion entirely, and after an argument with his parents, he admitted to being an atheist, which resulted in them denouncing him as their son and banishing him from their family while preventing his other siblings from speaking with him or assisting him in any way. So in 1997, Israel returned to Oregon and he highly delved into Satanism while also developing an interest in serial killers. He began to idolize Ted Bundy and read books about several infamous serial killers. He also started to study books written by investigators about what constitutes a serial killer, how to catch them, criminal profiling, the serial killer's techniques, and what they did that got them caught. He began to strongly believe that he had what it took to rape and murder whenever he wants without getting caught. So after preparing, he decided to attempt his first murder. In the summer of 1997 or 1998, Keyes allegedly committed a sexual assault on a teenage girl who was tubing with her friends down the Deschutes River, I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong, in Maupin, Oregon. Although this may not have been his first sexual assault, Keyes admitted that he stalked her from the tree line before very violently sexually assaulting her by knife point. He later estimated that she was between 14 and 18 years old. Originally planning to murder her as part of a satanic ritual, Keyes let her go in the river tube he had abducted her from. He later told investigators, quote, I was too timid. I wasn't violent enough. I made up my mind I was never going to let that happen again, unquote. One of his unverified but potential victims may have been Cassandra Cassie Emerson, who was 12 years old. She was another young girl from the Colville area who was reported missing after the remains of her mother, Marlene K. Emerson, who was 29, were discovered in their burned out trailer home on June 27th of 1997. Cassie's remains were found in 1998, about 13 miles from her home. Keyes did admit that his first act of arson was with a trailer in Colville. When questioned by police, Keyes' one-time fiance stated she thought he was responsible for committing the Colville murders. In July of 1998, Israel joined the United States Army where he was stationed at a few bases in the continental United States and also in Egypt. He was reported as being reserved and keeping to himself while also being a very heavy drinker on his off nights, consuming entire bottles of wild turkey whiskey. He also reportedly would snort around $100 worth of cocaine each day. He never admitted to committing any murders while in the army, but he did admit to two sexual assaults during that time, once in Egypt, supposedly a sex worker, and once in Israel, where he assaulted a college student. In February of 2001, he received a DUI, and then later that year, he was honorably discharged in July and relocated to Knee Bay, Washington, where he claims is where his murder spree began. He began to date a woman named Tammy, and they also had a child. Timmy, being a Native American, allowed them to live on the reservation near Nee Bay. 
He was a construction worker on the reservation and was highly valued within their community. But his alcohol abuse continued, and while drinking, he would admit to Tammy that he was not a good person and had a black heart. He later claims to have killed around seven people in Washington State from 2001 to 2007, while none have been verified at this time. He alluded to them during his later interrogation, but gave vague enough details that they were unable to tie them to anyone. But during this time, he would wait in the woods around Washington until an opportunity would present itself to him and he would attack lone hikers or whitewater rafters that got separated from their group. He used these alleged attacks to hone his skills and improve upon his techniques. Tammy was then diagnosed with ovarian cancer and had to have a hysterectomy. And Israel decided to take this opportunity to begin an online relationship with a woman named Kim. So in 2007, Israel, Kim, and Israel's daughter moved to Anchorage, Alaska when he was 29 and started a construction company. While living in Anchorage, he would take trips to the continental United States to commit his crimes because he knew that it would be more difficult to connect him to the crimes that way. He would go through extraordinary efforts to avoid being caught, including assembling his own kill kits, where he would place items that he would need to successfully subdue a victim, do whatever he felt like at the time, and eventually take their lives. He would place these kill kits in various locations throughout the country, allowing him access to these materials and weapons without having to travel with them. He had the confidence and belief that he would not get caught as he's been studying how to get away with these crimes. He made sure to never murder anyone near where he resides, he also never attacked and murdered in the same place more than once, and he did not have a specific victim type and would strike whenever the opportunity presented itself. Men and women, different ages and different races, he did state later in his interrogations that after he had his daughter, he would not target or harm children or people with children. He stated that having his daughter profoundly changed him so that he would not want to bring harm to a child. It may mean that prior to having his daughter, there were other victims that were children, but at this time, that has not been verified at all, just pure speculation. He would travel around the continental United States, scoping out places to carry out his perfect crimes, and then would stash his kill kit nearby, and may not use that location or kill kit stash for years. While on these trips, he would take the battery out of his cell phone so his movements and locations would not be traceable, and it is not known how many he buried, but he said there were less than 12, which is also, like I said, how he answered investigators' questions regarding how many victims there were, so it makes me question how many of either there truly are, and whether he was just toying with investigators as he truly enjoyed doing. Regardless, due to this planning and preparation and how he would choose one of his previously scoped out locations, Years later at random, and he would fly from Alaska to a different state, rent a car, and then drive to a kill kit, which was sometimes hundreds of miles from where he rented the car, and then commit the crime. He was able to go undetected for years. Some potential crimes that he has been linked to, but there has not been enough evidence to tie him completely to, are Suzanne Lyle, who was a 19-year-old college student when she vanished into thin air after getting off a bus on her college campus. 
Since 1998, there have been no sightings or evidence at all. There are many suspects, but Israel is one of those as he was in New York at the time of her disappearance. On March 23rd of 2007, a woman named Randy was kidnapped from a shopping center in Florida and her body was located an hour later with two bullet wounds. December 12th of 2007, a woman named Nancy and her seven-year-old daughter, Joey, were found fatally shot in their vehicle. April 8th of 2009, he may have kidnapped Deborah Feldman from her apartment in New Jersey and then took her body across state lines into upstate New York where he dumped her. He was seen around this time robbing a bank in Timberlake, New York. Later on, during investigations, he admitted to some murders in New Jersey, and the FBI were already trying to tie him to missing people in New Jersey. They would then show him pictures of missing people and eventually presented a photo of Deborah. He froze up and told detectives he was not ready to talk about that one yet. May 28th of 2011, Maggie Scott disappeared after attending a party at a campsite in British Columbia. She's never been found. A woman named Christine may have been one of the few lucky ones to escape his grasp. She reported that she was at a cemetery at night when all of a sudden a man started to run up to her and she ran off and jumped in her car and he just stood there staring at her. At that time, she had no idea that it was Israel Keys. She'd never met him previously, and it wasn't until he was later caught and was on the news when she realized he was the man she saw. In June of 2011, he committed one of the few crimes that investigators have been able to tie him to, where he flew from Anchorage, Alaska to Chicago, Illinois, then rented a car and drove to Essex, Vermont, about a 900 to 1,000 mile drive. Once there, he took a few days to scope out the area and pick his victim. He finally chose to break into the home of Bill and the Rain Courier, as her home was pretty secluded and did not have any children or dogs. Once he decided on their home, he cut the phone lines and waited for two hours, because cutting the phone lines can trip a security alarm to signal for help, so he waited to see if the alarm was sounded. As he waited, the couple and the neighbors appeared to turn in for the night. He then used a crowbar to gain entry into a garage window. He quickly surprised them in their bed and subdued them, then ransacked the house. He then placed them into their own car and took them to another location, an abandoned farmhouse that he had scoped out previously. He first dragged Bill into the farmhouse and down into the basement, where he tied him onto a stool then attacked him and beat him. He then went back to the car to find Lorraine, had gotten herself untied, and is trying to make a run for it. Unfortunately, he tackles her to the ground, forcing her into the farmhouse. He took her into an upstairs room where he beat her before he sexually assaulted Lorraine while strangling her to death. He then returns to the basement and fatally shot Bill. He doused their bodies in Drano, to remove any of the fingerprints or DNA, wrapped them in a tarp, then buried them under some rubbish in the basement and left. This location was unknown and their disappearance was a mystery until Israel confessed. The location of the alleged farmhouse was found, but the remains were not. As I slightly mentioned with the Deborah Feldman case, throughout these years while he is carrying out his murders, 
He is also robbing multiple banks. He would dress up in disguises with fake facial hair, hats, and sunglasses, heavy clothing, and the money that he made off with was what he used to fund these kill trips so he could afford to buy a plane ticket, rent a car, pay for gas, or whatever he needed. Finally, in February of 2012, he was caught after kidnapping and murdering Samantha Koenig in Anchorage, Alaska. Her boyfriend, who she had been dating for around nine months, went to pick her up from work and saw the lights in the coffee shop were all dark and the doors locked. He, of course, looks around but doesn't see her anywhere. He also had received a text from her shortly before arriving that he thought was suspicious right off the bat. The text stated, quote, Hey, I'm spending a couple days with friends. Let dad know, unquote. Her boyfriend quickly calls Samantha's dad and they contact the police. The police contact the coffee shop's owner to get more information about that night. And he tells them that she was working there alone that evening, but that they do have surveillance cameras inside and outside of the shop that he provides to them. The footage isn't great, but you can see from outside the camera footage that a man, who we later learn is Israel, pulls into the parking lot in his truck. He then walks up to the order window. There's also security footage from inside the shop shows someone wearing a balaclava, also known to most as a ski mask. Now this would make me immediately freak out. I live in coastal South Carolina. There's absolutely no need for a ski mask, but this was in Alaska and there was literal snow on the ground. I've not been to Alaska yet, but I can imagine to see someone outside wearing a ski mask would probably be pretty commonplace. To describe the coffee shop, it was set up as more of a drive up, walk up, and order stand. Pretty small building around the size of a large shed with a window that you could walk up to. Inside, there was just an area for the employees. Okay, so Israel walks up to her wearing a balaclava and orders a coffee of some sort, probably Americano. On the security footage, you see Samantha take his order get his coffee together and hand it to him. But then she turns around to look at something behind her where there is a light switch. Almost like he pointed out something to her. And as she turns back around towards him, she jumps back startled and raises her hands into the air. Then with her hands in the air, she turns off the light switch that was behind her. Then walks to the other end of the little shop and turns off the only other light leaving the security footage much darker because the only light source is coming in through the windows from outside. Then Samantha moves back and forth, once from one side of the stand to the other, before standing in front of the window looking out again at him. After a few moments, she is seen getting down onto the floor and laying down. Then Israel crawls through the window and enters the stand. He has her stand up and walks her out of the door into his truck. He later admits that when they were inside the shop, uh, he zip-tied her hands together and had originally planned to take her away in her own car. But when he discovered that she didn't have one there, he then changed his plans. Samantha then tried to take to make a break for it and started to run while yelling for help, but he was ready and quickly tackled her to the ground, then shoved the gun into her side and walked her back to his truck, forcing her inside. Unfortunately, no one around noticed. He stated he originally was only intending to rob the store, but took the opportunity and ran with it. 
This was completely against his usual MO as he had a strict rule to not commit these crimes near his home, but this was right where he lived and worked. But he had been stalking this kiosk for months, deciding he was going to rob it and potentially kidnap the barista if the opportunity presented itself. He keeps Samantha calm by telling her that he only wants money and is going to use her for ransom. She tells him that her family doesn't have that kind of money, but he reassures her that the community will come up with the ransom and not to worry, he's not wanting to hurt her as long as she cooperates. He only wants money. He states that she believed him and stopped putting up a fight. He then drives around for hours and finally takes her to his home, which he shared with his girlfriend and daughter and he placed her into a shed that he had built on the property. He never implicated his girlfriend in any way, and I believe it to be possible that he was able to commit these horrible crimes behind her back. I don't know much about the relationship at all, but from what I've learned about him, and Betty had some pretty fundamental conservative views on men and women and their roles in the relationship. And I bet she, at the very least, knew better than to question him in any way, or she may witness his wrath, allegedly. I also think that she probably questioned some of his choices and behaviors, but when you are in what I would completely speculate was probably not the most healthy or happy relationship, and one person is more dominant than the other, the submissive type will be just that, submissive, and in some cases a complete doormat as a defense mechanism to protect themselves from the trauma of the abuser. He was also allegedly very intelligent and calculating, so up until he was caught, he took his time to plan each of the crimes so as not to be caught. As I stated, I really don't know, and that is just speculation based on my own interpretation, but that also would mean that we have to believe everything he says, and I'm not sure that we can. So anyways, after he put Samantha into the shed, he turned on the radio to try to drown out any noises that she may inadvertently make. He then demands that she give him her cell phone and debit card, which she tells him she doesn't have. Her cell phone was back at the kiosk and her debit card was in her boyfriend's truck. He asks to know the location where her boyfriend lives, then leaves Samantha tied up. He goes to the boyfriend's house and breaks into his truck, locating her debit card. Her boyfriend actually saw him in his truck and runs back inside to get help, but by the time they come out, Israel was gone. Israel then returns to the coffee kiosk and retrieves her phone and stops at an ATM to test the PIN number she gave him. Unfortunately, his intentions were never to ransom her and keep her alive. He then went into his home, leaving her in the shed, poured himself a glass of wine before returning to the shed where he sexually assaulted Samantha while choking her until she lost her life. He then wrapped her body in a tarp and put that into a cabinet in the shed, which, by the way, had no heat or real insulation at all, so it was freezing cold. By the time he finished cleaning up his crimes in the shed, it was the next morning. He got himself together, woke up his daughter, and got her ready and off to school. The next part is a little bit confusing, so I apologize, but from what I was able to find, shortly after this, I believe either later that day or the next, he hopped onto an airplane and flew to New Orleans, Louisiana, to board a two-week cruise, which he had booked months previously, and his daughter and girlfriend joined him. Once the cruise ship returned to port, he rented a car and drove to Texas, where he robbed and lit a house on fire before robbing a branch of the National Branch of Texas. 
I'm not sure where his daughter and girlfriend were at this time after the cruise. Maybe he told them he had some business to attend to and they flew home to Alaska and he rented the car. I'm not sure. Finally, he hopped back on a flight back to Alaska where he returned to the shed, removed Samantha's body from the cabinet where she had been frozen, and he again sexually assaulted her body. He then used a hair dryer to thaw her so that he could pose her for a ransom photo. He used his girlfriend's makeup and applied makeup to her face. He braided her hair, and he even used a needle and thread and sewed her eyes open. He sat her body up, and he held a recent newspaper beside her so he could photograph her with the paper. He then texted Samantha's boyfriend the following, quote, Connor Park, sign under pick of Albert, ain't she purdy, unquote. So, of course, he and her family rushed to Connor Park, where they end up finding a Ziploc bag pinned to a bulletin board containing a ransom note demanding that her family place $30,000 into her bank account if they wanted to see her alive again, and the picture of Samantha with the day's paper was in the bag as well. A few days later, he dismembered Samantha's body and then took her remains to Muscaluska Lake outside of Anchorage, where he built an ice fishing type hut on the lake so that he could be completely undercover while he disposed of her remains in the frozen lake. Samantha's parents, with the help of others, gather the ransom money and put it into her account with the FBI actively watching it. It is set up to notify them immediately when there is any transaction on the account. So you would think that this was his immediate downfall, but unfortunately, even with the notifications in place and working as they should, they're still always a few steps behind and he's able to use her card to withdraw from three different ATMs within Anchorage at $500 a piece. There are just too many ATMs around the entire area for them to be watching everyone and by the time they're able to arrive on the scene, he has already left the area. Each time the PIN number is entered correctly the first time, as I mentioned earlier, when he first kidnapped her, he asked for her PIN and tested it while she was still alive. Then, in the beginning of March, he flew to Las Vegas, where he used her debit card to remove $400 from her account. He was dressed in disguise as not to be recognized by any cameras. He then makes two more withdrawals from her account, triggering agents to quickly run to those locations, but again, he was able to escape. Finally, the cameras were able to capture his rental car. They were not able to make out the license plate, but did easily identify the make and model, a white Ford Focus. Just two days later, he traveled into Texas and made another withdrawal from her bank account. This sparks the FBI to notify the Texas law enforcement to be on the lookout for a white Ford Focus. On March 13th, a Texas highway patrolman spotted a white Ford Focus at a motel. He watched as the car left the motel and began traveling over the speed limit. The officer used this as a motive to make a traffic stop and approached his car, requesting to see his license. When he saw that his license was from Alaska, he radioed for backup. In the car, the police found a, a dye-stained roll of cash from the bank robbery, as well as the mask he wore to withdraw the money from Samantha's bank account, a gun, and Samantha's debit card. He was taken into custody and a few days later was flown back to Anchorage. At first, he was reluctant to talk to authorities, but on March 31st, that all changed. He laughs and says that if they want to know everything, he needs a Starbucks Americano, a Snickers candy bar, and a cigar. 
which they do give him, and he begins to reveal the truth. At this point, they believe that he has just kidnapped Samantha and are holding out hope that she's still alive. He admitted to abducting Samantha from the coffee shop and stated that eventually he would give them more information on her and his many other crimes, but that he wanted a few things in return. He wanted assurance that he would be executed within a year, and he wanted the police to promise to keep the details of his crimes from the press. He was worried now about the backlash this information would have on his daughter should it be released to the media. And while I respect that in some capacity, and for that reason, I will not mention her name at all in any of this. If she wants to come forward and talk about this in any capacity, that is 100% up to her. And I do hope that she's okay and living a happy life. I can't imagine how this has impacted her, and she's also an innocent victim to this horrible story. He also didn't want his story to get released because he didn't want people like myself to talk about him and make some quote-unquote stupid true crime bullshit, as he stated in his interview. I hope this podcast adds a little more fuel to his perpetual fire in hell, but anyways, his last demand was that he would be given the death penalty. He did not want to be stuck in prison, and he said he wanted everything to be wrapped up within a year so he could go out with his good memories in his words. The FBI cannot promise the death penalty, or any penalty for that matter. He would have to go to trial or accept a plea deal, which would be signed off on by a judge. But they try to tell him what he wants to hear and tell him that they will work with the judge and do whatever they can to make sure he gets what he wants. He provides the details of what happened to Samantha pretty much right away, but then over the course of months, he slowly drips little pieces of information about his crimes to the detectives. He would tell them about his childhood, his teenage years, his time in the army, his first sexual assault, and how he truly regretted allowing her to live. Throughout all of these interviews, which are pretty easily available and readily out there if you really have nothing better to do, I may be able to include some snips, but he laughs at his own words and finds humor in the terrible things he is revealing. Now I am someone that can giggle when I'm uncomfortable and I can find humor in dark jokes, but his laugh is not that. He really gets such a kick out of the things he's done. Maybe there's a bit of nervous laughter, but it's very creepy and disturbing to hear. He also is very arrogant and tells police, quote, you will only know if I kill people, if I tell you that I killed them. All of my victims are just missing persons. You would never know to connect me to them, unquote. Of course, if you do watch them, you will also see the detectives laughing along and making light of the things with him. But these were tactics that they were using to try to keep him talking. He really enjoyed sharing what he was saying, especially with an audience that seemed to be enjoying what he was saying, and this bolstered him to share more information. He revealed locations to find some of the weapon stashes, and when police were investigating an area where one of the kill kits was located, the news became aware and was trying to get more details from the area and the officers investigating. Keys arrogantly shared his distaste with the police during his interviews, that he was unhappy with how they handled things, and that this was one of his demands. They eventually asked him outright if Samantha is dead or if she's alive out there somewhere, and he confirmed that she was dead and provided enough details for the investigators to locate her remains in the frozen lake. Because he placed them in a frozen lake, they were pretty much still the same, but like I said, he had dismembered her. 
At this time, he provides investigators the details of what happened to Samantha in entirety, as well as providing the details of the murders of Bill and the Rain. After many grueling months, seven to be exact, of him slowly providing them the information, the location of the abandoned farmhouse where he disposed of the couple was revealed. The police rushed to the location to try to locate the remains, but heartbreakingly, the abandoned house had been completely demolished. The construction crew who demolished the house did write in their report that there was a horrible stench of death inside the home, but their remains were not spotted while the house was demolished, and their bodies, along with the debris from the demolition, were taken to the local landfill and disposed of. Law enforcement did go to the landfill and performed an extensive 12-week search, but they were unsuccessful in locating their remains. May 23rd of 2012, Israel appeared in front of a federal court judge in a hearing to set a trial date. During this trial, Israel broke free from his shackles and jumped into the first row of seats in the gallery of the courtroom before being tackled and tased by the deputies present. Once back interrogations with police, he joked with police and laughed, stating, quote, Let's not pretend that me being an escapee is what makes me untrustworthy. I was already untrustworthy before that. And then he laughs, unquote. They're trying to answer some pretty tough questions from Vermont right now about basically what the fuck. Right, but I mean, still, even still, from their perspective, um, I, they've, I mean, come on, let's face it. Yeah, what happened yesterday? Ooh, I'm a bad guy. I tried to escape, but um, let's be honest. Nobody really thought I was a good guy before that, so... (laughs) It's not like being escaping suddenly makes me untrustworthy. I was kind of untrustworthy before that, so... (laughs) Never once showed any ounce of remorse or empathy. He seemed to enjoy the conversation, smiling and laughing and sharing the horrible details of what he did. He even joked and laughed that he almost felt guilty for causing the taxpayers' money having to investigate his crimes. Investigators stated that at times he would appear bored and unbothered while they were detailing his crimes, but then at other times when talking about the murders, he would get excited and hang on every word. There were more leaks from the FBI and local media in Vermont reported that Israel was the perpetrator responsible for Bill and the Rain's kidnapping and alleged murders. Like I've said, this is one of his conditions. He had given police for him to talk about his crimes. And in his mind, they broke their end of the bargain. He was furious and berated them and told them that they had broken his trust and he no longer wanted to talk to them. The FBI was reportedly extremely angry about this leak to the media because they had spent all these months and all this time and effort to get him to talk and reveal information on his crimes. And they finally got him to confess to three murders the ones of Samantha, Bill, and the rain. Now, due to the leak, he is shutting down and not being cooperative. He did still talk a little bit more and would give some vague details about murders he committed in Washington. None of these bodies have ever been found, and he just didn't give enough details to connect him. And this is when he partially confirms that he may have kidnapped and killed Deborah Feldman in New Jersey. On November 29th, he again sat down with investigators but he was very withdrawn and seemed uninterested in their presence. He admitted he wasn't up to talking and maybe he would be in about a week. Then on Sunday, December 2nd, 2012, 
He was found in his cell, covered in blood, and was pronounced dead at 6.18 a.m. He had slit his wrist and then rigged himself up with bed sheets so that as he lost consciousness, the weight of his own body would ensure that he strangled until he stopped breathing. A razor blade was found in his cell. He was accidentally given a disposable razor instead of an electric one, of course. This, of course, left the possibility of locating and identifying any additional victims quite low. He did leave behind a four-page suicide note, but it was completely saturated with his blood, so much so that it was unable to be read until the FBI carefully and meticulously cleaned it. Unfortunately, it did not contain anything about his crimes or any leads that would help locate potential victims. It was just more of a long poem. They also found 12 pieces of paper where he had used his own blood to draw 11 skulls and one pentagram. This also made the FBI feel it confirmed that he had 11 victims, one skull for each victim, and he was represented by the pentagram. The FBI still continued to research and investigate the case, searching for more potential victims, but to this day, no one else has been connected to him. The FBI was successful in locating one additional kill kit around the Lake Falls Reservoir in Parrishville, New York. His mother, four of his sisters, and their husbands, and the family pastor attended his funeral. No one else was in attendance, including his other six siblings, daughter, or girlfriend. So I think this is why myself and so many others are fascinated by this crime in this case. There's still some mystery surrounding it and may never be uncovered. Did he really just kill three people and make up everything else because he enjoyed holding the attention of investigators and hearing himself talk about these depraved things? Or did he have more victims? There's a lot to suggest to me that he does have more than we have been able to connect him to so far. I think he knew all along he would never reveal them all to the police. That's why he did it so slowly, just waiting for it to be released to the news so he could do the whole song and dance about how his trust was broken and then end his own life. He was never intending on letting the state kill him as he always wanted control. I think if he had kept to his M.O. and continued the way he was, he may have been able to continue for a lot longer. But thankfully, he got arrogant and sloppy and bolstered by his actions. He decided to ramp the thrill up another notch, which did lead to his downfall. Unfortunately, Samantha fell victim to this atrocious man. I wish he would have been put on trial and given a life sentence instead of a death penalty to remove that control and strip him of his self-imposed power without stupidly giving him the chance to end his own life with a razor blade. That just irks me so badly that he was able to take all of that information that could have potentially given family members and loved ones the final closure they so desperately need. I cannot imagine losing someone I care about in a violent crime, but for them to just go completely missing and to never know what happened, I think that would be worse for me. I'd never be able to move on and cope from the loss. It's so devastating. But on that happy note, I'm going to end the case here. Please let me know what you think in um, the comments. Find me on social so we can continue the conversation. Do you think he committed more murders or was he just admitting to crimes for the fun of the game? If you have a case suggestion or topics you'd like to know more about, please share that with me as well. Um, please like this if you enjoyed it. 
please give it a rating if you're able to. Share it with others that may be interested in this type of content. Subscribe if you're able to or hit the bell notification so that you get notified when I update. Um, like I said, please find me on social. I'm on Facebook and Instagram under Christie's Chronicles so we can continue the conversation. I really appreciate any support you can provide. Please be safe out there and spread some light, love, and kindness in your communities. Peace.